but the act of pronunciation is the act of reducing the world to stability. It's like a wave function collapse, right? To from ethics to morality, you know, codes and rules for governing bodies and minds. It's it's the collapse from um, from chaos to order, from indeterminacy to determinacy to definitions to identity. But there are moments when mispronunciation becomes this crack, this trickster's crack that bursts through everything and upsets the established order. And I feel this is when new gods are born. Today on the podcast, New Gods at the End of the World with Bio Akomalafe and Sophie Strand. Welcome to The Sounds of Sand presented by Science and Non-Duality on the bridge between science and spirituality. If you're ready to discover what lies in the cracks, listen in now. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Welcome back to The Sounds of Sand. We're super excited to share an organic and wild conversation between two poets, writers, philosophers, and theobiologians. That's Bio's term. And that's with Bio Akamalafe and Sophie Strand. And this conversation was hosted by science and non-duality Zaya and Maurizio Bonazzo. And to hear the full conversation with the Q&A and from the live webinar audience, you can head over to scienceandnonduality.com. And if you search for new gods, or just look in our past webinar section, you can purchase and download the full conversation. And also, if you want to go deeper with Bio and Sophie, as well as Tyson Yonkaporta and Vanessa Andreotti, and if you're listening to this before the workshop starts, which is on the 19th of October, 2022, you can go to our website, scienceandnonduality.com and consider registering for their three-day workshop. And the workshop's entitled The Wandering, Winding Way of the Wound. And it's going to explore our shared global trauma as a modern grammar of loss. So if you're listening, when this is released, you still have time to register. Again, this workshop starts on the 19th of October. And you can find a link to the workshop in our show notes where you can read more about what's expected in this three-day workshop and more about the hosts and facilitators. Okay, so today's discourse is between Bio and Sophie, and it's a wild exploration with words and ideas, memes, biology, ecology, and it touches and weaves into so many territories. Environmental collapse, Catholic saints, Joan of Arc being one of them, <laughs> glitches in evolution, 
and the power of mini- mispronunciation. I think I'll leave that in there. That's min- mispronunciation. Uh, COVID, ecotomes, the diaspora of the body, Baba Lao, who was recently featured on our Sand YouTube channel, so go check that out. The DSM manual, which it, you'll hear them talk about that, and that's the uh, Diagnosis and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and that's something psychiatrists use. The Transatlantic Slave Trade, Tardigrades as Gods and Rewilding Pigs. And if this sounds like a lot, this is just a taste of what you're in for. So our guests today are Bio Akumalafe, He's rooted in the Yorba people in a more than human way. He's a widely celebrated international speaker, a post-humanist thinker, poet, teacher, public intellectual, essayist, and author of two books, These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for a Home, and We Will Tell Our Story, The Lions of Africa Speak. And Sophie Strand is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. And her first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, will be published this fall by Inner Traditions. And we'll have links to their sites and bios in the show notes. And now we present... New Gods at the End of the World with Bio Akamalafe and Sophie Strand. If it feels strange that we are having a conversation about new gods in a time of war, in a time of pain and suffering and trauma and, and loss and heat waves that have names and weather conditions that are so errant that we no longer know how to predict tomorrow, if it seems queer or inappropriate, um, then you might be working with uh, a strange, an equally strange notion of gods. When I think about gods, I don't think about something that is so abstracted that it's of heavenly relevance, but no earthly relevance, right? I'm thinking about something that is as close to us as our own breaths, as our own skin. Um, so this is not some philosophical sophistry into or play with words and concepts. This is a grounded, situated, and penultimately playful attempt at thinking through the divine and the sacred and how that is already imbricated in the questions, the urgent questions we have about our days, about what it means to be in hope, about losing hope, about losing trust, about losing our lands, about losing our bodies. So this is serious business. And serious business can only be seriously approached playfully. So the times are serious, we have to play. And I'm here with my dear sister, to diffractively compose and braid new tapestries with you. And we're not looking for resolution or consensus, even though you are one of the foremost theobiologians of our time. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd laugh at that one. Um, 
but I'm just here to weave and co-braid with you, sister, and see what emerges surprise, surprisingly from, from our conversation. So. Thank you, Baya. So I was a medieval studies major in college and I was fascinated with saints and how they are really tutelary deities of certain places that then get a name and you go to them with certain issues. You know, there's, you know, if you lose something, you go to, is it St. Anthony? You have an impossible problem, you go to St. Jude. And these are less people and they're more like land beings that have very, that sometimes do work, sometimes don't, you know, you mm -hmm. know, in folk tradition, if they don't work, you turn them upside down, you yell at them. <laughs> and for me, I, I need, I need help quite often. Um, I'm, I'm in dire conditions all the time in terms of my body and um, the way I navigate the world um, as uh, a skin silhouette of matter. Um, and I don't find that these Christian saints work for me anymore, but I do mm -hmm. find that beings take on a kind of pantheistic, pantheistic um, relevance for me. And I want to offer one that came to me mm -hmm. a couple of days ago. And I've been, I've been having a lot of, my, my spine is not working recently. I've been feeling like kind of like a pasta noodle. Like I can't stand up right, can't really do anything. My body doesn't work. And Deloid Rotifera came to me and said, I have some good news for you. And the good news has no human language attached. And in fact, it doesn't even do, doesn't even have sex in the same way that humans do. It is, a, it is the, the queen of parthenogenesis and kleptogenesis. So I wanted to offer that as like a starting point. Do you know about Deloid? No. Oh, bio. I'm here. Here is Deloid. I'm giving Deloid Rotifera to you um, because she, they, have been very helpful. So Deloid has been having asexually reproducing for 80 million years, which in mm. biology is supposed to be actually a very bad approach. And they do it very briefly and then they switch back to sexual reproduction because there's no way to actually create the evolutionary novelty that lets people, that lets beings adapt to shifting conditions when you're just cloning yourself again and again and again. Right. But Deloid is this tiny little nematode worm, this little like disgusting being that lives in puddles and like septic tanks is only parthenogenesis only reproduces itself they can't find a male and they don't understand how it's been around for so long if it's i mean it turns out it's even more powerful than a tardigrade it can withstand more radiation really? more desiccation it's just hardy they found out that the way that it actually persists without having sex in the correct way is by eating shit, literally, and then not digesting that DNA and stealing DNA from fungi, from bacteria, from viruses. So it eats shit and then incorporates it into its own body. And that's the way it evolves. It doesn't evolve in any of the ways we think we're supposed to. It evolves by process of indigestion. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to offer the deloid as this being, you know, as we're facing like it can be desiccated without breaking down so it can be like in, in a puddle and then the puddle can dry up and it can last for a million years mm. so it has a lot to teach us about drought and heat and about intense conditions and about not being able to find a mate <laughs> has mm. a lot and about eating shit as a way to evolve 
I'm especially attracted to that prospect. Me, me too. Well, I thought you might be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I'm, I'm so, um, I mean, that critter reminds me that the thematic or the motif of some of the things that I want to share today have to do with breakdowns and eating shit and being in shitty situations and how displacement kind of produces um, gods, new gods, if you will. Um, okay, that's the that's the spelling for anyone who wants Someone to find out about right, this, yeah. this critter. Um, so I've been speaking about um, mispronunciation, Sophie. Yeah. Um, it, a couple of months ago, I had an interview and this lady, you know, invited me to pronounce my name. She, she was not going to get it wrong. So she said, might I ask how to pronounce your name properly? And I challenged her, you know, part of my politics is to situate myself astride the morality of Euro-American centrism yeah. and to not be eaten up by that. And, and I, I think it's a gift, not just to my context, but to the contexts that I find myself speaking to sometimes. Um, I, I refuse to pronounce my name properly. I leaned into the mispronunciation and said, you know, my people offer the gift of mispronunciation. I actually made that up in a moment, <laughs> coined it. Um, but the phenomenon is not made up. Um, and the story is... We kind of celebrate mispronunciation. We don't. We don't. Um, we don't shy back or shy away from it. We lean into it because it's how we notice God as if for the first time, right? So we we lean into the strange. Our cosmologies, our theogonies, are built around um, the, the flight errors, errancy, right? Shitty situations, mispronunciations. Um, so I encouraged her to mispronounce my name. This is not some universal, this is not some universal template, just a cultural situated um, approach of a given people and how they meet the world of gift and surprise. And then I started to think about mispronunciation um, as something that is more than a verbal event, more than a linguistic matter. Right? How does the world mispronounce itself? Right? If we're to think beyond words and tongues and voices, how is mispronunciation more than human, more than lingual, more than verbal? Um, and I think, you know, if you start to think about displacement and loss, then you come to a place where you realize that the world is constantly shaking and moving and mispronouncing itself, um, leaning away from the static or the identified or the familiar and constantly seeking other ways of being with itself. And this is where the trickster comes up. But I want to leave it at that before I continue the story um, as we diffractively compose something we don't know together. Um, this feels like the start this displacement feels like the start or the beginning of an adventure into how the world co-creates new gods and invites us to cultivate gods and goddesses 
new archetypes. And this is a challenge. You see, this is a challenge. And this situates our conversation in a very, very alive and vibrant and animated politics of responsivity in challenging times. This is how I feel to enter this conversation with you, sister. I love the idea of mispronunciation as being both macrocosmically and microcosmically bigger than just language. And I was thinking right. a lot about how evolution mostly works by accident through these glitches right. that then begin to build a whole new molecular syntax. And, through, and so beings only survive in as much that as they can mispronounce themselves as they right. can let, let themselves be coded incorrectly. And then mm -hmm. that, inc that incorrect pronunciation then becomes the way they survive. Um, I've been, one of the things that, so I have a body that doesn't work. I have genetic connective tissue disease and it, like my spine is out of alignment. I'm always correcting in incorrect ways. And so recently you know, people are always trying to come in and telling me how to stand correctly and how to fix my, my gait and fix my hips so that I don't dislocate and so that I can look more, you know, correct, move more correctly. But I've been thinking lately that human beings are not built to be well or to be correct. They're built to keep moving forward so that they can escape danger <laughs> and to get more food. And so, in fact, if you correct someone and then they feel pain, and they suddenly are in the, you know, they're, they're syntactically, physically correct. Suddenly they can't move as fast. They can't survive. They can't keep moving forward. So it's this ways that your body mispronounces itself, even in a very skeletal kind of fa fascial way that helps right. you keep moving. So recently someone corrected me, a very, you know, talented body worker corrected me and it destabilized my entire body. I, you know, I'm, I'm holding, I'm not supposed to hold myself like this, but this is how I keep moving. It's, it's mm -hmm. the way I mispronounce my own body that keeps me surviving. And so I've been thinking mm -hmm. a lot about how, especially in body work, we think about correcting the body, but sometimes mm -hmm. the ways the body has, has corrected itself are the ways in which it keeps moving. Mm. Human beings are not built to be well. I have to write that down. There, they're, they're built to keep moving forward. We're really like just meant to just keep. <laughs> it's it's the it's the it's the ontological, epistemological trap of modern civilization, right? What it wants to create is rectilinear figures, right? Um, and and what it wants to propagate is a notion of closure, right? Um, wellness is closure. Um, what it means to be correct is, or correctness is, represents some idyllic platonic world out there, some transcendent world. And so we're representing that world. This is an escape from imminence. This is an escape from ecology. This is an escape from our bodies and the errancy, the vibrant creative errancy that makes us possible. Um, and so Sophia, I, I was also thinking about pronunciation. As, as as this act of correcting, right? What this person is, or you spoke about, try to do, like um, pronunciation would be then 
this act of cutting through the multidimensionality, the multiplicity, the duplicity, the indeterminacy of things, right, is to cut through it and enact closure, enact a definition, right? It's the, it's the equivalent of reductionism, right? Um, during the pandemic, for instance, the official no. understanding um, was the wisdom of the time, and we're still in those times, was that the virus is the enemy, right? And the thing to do is to get rid of the enemy, is to get rid of it. And there's this man in Kerala that's, that built a temple to, I think I told you the story. I don't know if I told you the story, but built a temple it, yeah. to worship the virus. And he was canceled, right? He was attacked abroad and in India. People started to say, this is primitive. This is rubbish. We should adopt a very serious approach during this pandemic. And he was of the opinion that if God is everywhere, then God is also this virus. There was this processual, relational, gentle, liminal thinking that was part of his offering that the virus is God, the virus is furniture, the virus is salvation, the virus is suffering, the virus is pain. Things are many things, right? At the same time, nothing exists by itself. But the act of pronunciation is the act of reducing the world to stability. It's like a wave function collapse, right? To from ethics to morality, you know, codes and rules for governing bodies and minds. It's, it's the collapse from, um, from chaos to order, from indeterminacy to determinacy, to definitions, to identity. But there are moments when mispronunciation becomes this crack, this trickster's crack that bursts through everything and upsets the established order. And I feel this is when new gods are born, right? Mispronunciation is not just verbal, it's a cosmic act. It's the invitation to the divine. Yes, maybe I'll stop there for now. Oh, I have so many thoughts. I love that. I mean, I also love the idea, like I'm deathly afraid of rabies and I have been attacked by rabid bats and animals before. And so this is like not conceptual it's it's real and lived and for whatever yeah. reason it's a phobia of mine so I started praying to rabies because <laughs> I was like you obviously want my attention I have to start making eye contact with you in some way that's not going to be actually getting rabies <laughs> I have to like start the dialogue before it becomes it, it slips subperceptually into my actual body um, so I was just thinking about that in terms of the virus and how we when we don't start the dialogue, the dialogue begins in a material incursion. That if we begin it in this kind of spiritual sense, we can perhaps avoid having to physically manifest it so it gets our attention. Um, but what I was thinking actually about is ecotones and about those moments where one ecosystem very dramatically becomes another. And uh -huh. there's, this, there's this slice between the two, this gradient, this interface that you've talked about interfaces before. I think it's just such an yeah. interesting idea um, where there's much more biodiversity. There are many more animals and species and types of animals in this brief overlap spot, this tension. The ecotone comes from household and from tension. 
So it's the Mm -hmm. surface tension of two ecosystems not quite participating in each other. And that's where the most life comes about is right in that spot. And so that spot to me is the crack. It's the place where two, two bodies are interacting in a way that it's, it's far exceeds moral categories that they're creating friction and tension. Maybe they're rubbing the skin off of each other a little bit. It's a kind mm-hmm. of, it's a traumatic interface, but that's where the new gods are born, where new birds and new fish often come into being are in these like tidal zones. Um, mm. And I was thinking about this other idea I've been, th- I've been playing with lately is, so we have these original cells that were unicellular. And then mm-hmm. at a certain point, multicellularity comes into being. But what would that age feel like to the single cells? Like, it must feel deeply traumatic to bump mm. into someone and to suddenly to never separate. Like, what does it feel like for, for these single selves to suddenly be making these concatenated larger selves permanently? And then I was mm. thinking about what you were saying in regards to trauma being a territory we're all inhabiting right now. It's it's a a place that we're living, not something that we own or can extract from ourselves. It's it's a place we have to navigate. And I was thinking, like, what if trauma is the symptom of a moment when selves are becoming something quite different? And what if trauma is is this interface between bodies that are merging? Right. I mean, with that thought about trauma is deeply i i think of trauma as body proofing rituals right huh. like um like this is if you were to go to space you would need space juice i don't know i mean, i don't know um to, to hold you while you're in space you need a prop right you need some uh, this is where bateson gregory bateson shines you know bursting through the habituated ways we see the body that bodies are not just this morphological outlines we're used to. Our bodies are diasporic. Our bodies are molecular. Our bodies are tentacular, doing things that escape visibility, right? Um, and that's the invitation here, right? The When we think about trauma, we often drive it through the capitalist individual, right? The, the capitalist self that is isolated, that is identifiable, that is some kind of a wave collapse function again. Um, but seen through animist lenses, trauma becomes more than human. It becomes all the things that we are doing. And by we, I don't just mean humans, but how territories take shape, how bodies are reinforced, reinscribed, and put together again and again in placemaking rituals of of co-compositional politics, right? How we come back together again and again, but most importantly is what is left out, right? Like body proofing against something. It's like a defense mechanism. Something rushes in um, and these things have many names. We just spoke about multi, multi-dimensionality, right? A virus is not just simply a virus. An experience is not just simply an experience. I think I've told you many times about, um, or we've had this conversation and there's too many conversations to have, my sister, about sitting with a Yoruba Babalao. Uh, a Babalao is a, don't, not a shaman, a, a healer who's a priest, right? 
notions of healing in Yoruba culture have little to do with the medical paradigm that we inherited. You would see a Babalao as some kind of a cosmic lawyer, right? He negotiates your case with the pantheon. Like, what are you guys doing? Come on, this is my brother. Do something about it through the agency of plants and calories and sonic driving and all of that. You could think of a Babalao as a shaman. Anyway, I sat with seven of them more than a decade ago. And I remember um, asking my very haughty Western inspired question about um, diagnostic tools. Here is this clinical psychologist in his suit and tie. And I was asking questions about how do you think about auditory hallucination, right? How do you diagnose it? It came to that question anyway. How do you diagnose it? How do you treat it? What's your opinion on it? What are your, where's your DSM manual? Where's the indigenous version of the DSM? And he was like, why would you want to get rid of <laughs> those voices in your head? What if that's your grandmother? What if that's your grandfather? What if that's the voice of a God, right? It was shocking to me because it was palpably obvious to him that the world was not neat and tidy that way, that in those places of cracks and openings, there are ancestral energies, there are archetypal longings, and that is a site of destruction, but also creation. It is harmful and risky, but at the same time, the kernel of the yet to come is embedded in those cracks, in those, in those mispronunciations. Have you read Terence Deacon bio? Terence who? Terence Deacon, the, the neuroanthropologist. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think I have. That's what I'm thinking of. So Terence Deacon says, and I'm really interested in embryogenesis, which is that right. how totipotency, omnipotency moves to totipotency, then moves to these, um, these patterns that shouldn't actually exist, that we've never, and that DNA is actually one of the most passive parts about our human makeup, that we've, we've hidden the black box of this homuncular process that actually reads it and creates our patterned bodies. For me, I love Terence Deacon talks about it as an absential, which is it's there's an there's an absence, just as you know, and I think it's in the I Ching, it talks about how like the thing that draws the wheel into into shape is the absence mm -hmm. at the center of it. And it's this absence, it's this, it's this absence of our form in our future that sucks us into being. It's this absential, this predictive quality of our shape in the future. Um, mm. And I like to think of that in a very kind of erotic way, which is it's, mm. it's, it's a yearning that draws, you know, it's the shape in you that has not been filled that draws in matter, but it's the mm. shape. So what I'm interested in is this idea of it's not even just this electric spark that's moving through it. It's not something. Right. No. No. It's, it's an absence of something. It's, right. it's this absence. This, the, it's an, act, an active absence. Um, yes at the core that draws us into shape. I am always so worried when I um, listen to things like that from scientists, even though I love their research, because when we have fixed the human race, the human race can no longer evolve. Like we, we think of ourselves as a climactic species, but we're living in dynamic environments that are shifting that we will need to glitch out and become disabled in order to inhabit. Mm. And so I worry about 
fixing these, these bodies that are beginning to experiment um, mm. at the very edges, at the ecotones of what is supposed to be materially like appropriate. Um, so as someone whose body could be fixed, I wonder if I should be fixed. Yes. Glitches and <laughs> flashing through and bursting out and absence as material and the apophatic theologies and exactly, negative yeah. theologies <laughs> <laughs> that, that say the void isn't empty. And this is what James Hillman, the archetypal psycho, uh, psychologist, would say, that gods, the gods are everywhere. We are swimming in dynamic, animated, tentacular territories. And there is no escaping that. There is no removing ourselves from that. We're always in conversation with these biofuel signals, right? And, and these signals are, you know, thinking with mispronunciation as a glowing point in our conversation like it's it, this flashing through reminds me of the stories of um uh, that some of my elders tell about um the challenges of today and the kinds of moves that we need to make right mm -hmm. we're discussing theogony we're discussing the emergence of cracks we're discussing the emergence of new gods we're discussing their proliferation their abundance um I know we want to make a link between that and the politics of today, right? We want to say that this is, of course, like I started, this is not just um, some abstractual game. This is grounded. This is this is us thinking about how we think. So, Sophie, this story is about Eshu, who is the trickster in the Yoruba pantheon, right? And this um, this. You know, the story is told that he um, he embarked upon uh, the voyage, the slave, the middle passage, the transatlantic slave trade. He was on all of those trips. Right. He he did his best to subvert the attempts by his brother, Ogun, you know, the god of victory and iron. He did his best to try to cut off the insurgency, to chase away the slave masters. Instead, what he did was to invite those ships, which is troubling. It's, an, it's a moral intervention that is deeply troubling, but issue embodies deception and shape-shifting um, villainy and, uh, and, and all the things that tricksters embody. But there's something about him embarking upon that trip that tells me about the kinds of politics we need to convene today. Because I think that voyage, the Middle Passage, was an attempt of making sanctuary. Where making sanctuary is not about keeping people safe, right? That's some idea of sanctuary. But making sanctuary is about protecting something fragile, something so what you call the active absence, right? Something so infinitesimally and vanishingly small, but is the voice and the cry of novelty, right? Um, and he embarked upon those trips. I can imagine that upon the embryonic surface of the Atlantic Ocean, there were cracks. These signals flashing through and the gods that were going to be born in the Creolized Americas were born through those cracks. 
through candomblé and santeria and all the traditions, the Afro-diasporic spiritualities that emerged as a result of that mispronunciation, as a result of that displacement. So I think what we're saying is how displacement and errancy and falling away from the rectilinearity of being corrected actually is as painful as that might be, is the invitation to cultivate new gods together, right? A politics that is alive to the cultivation of tardigrades as gods. And this friend of ours, Deloitte, as part of a pantheon, an ecological priesthood, right? A new form of worship. Yes. I've been thinking so much about your thinking about Ishun, Ishu? Mispronounce it. There you go. And <laughs> he doesn't mind. The idea of stowaways and syncretism, and especially in relation, relationship to invasive species. Like, so there's an intense drought in the Hudson Valley right now. And for whatever reason, it's the invasive species that are able to still survive. It's the chicory, the European invasives, the chicory and the um, purple loosestrife and the mustard greens and the knotweed that can still thrive in this intense heat. And then they come in the hulls of ship, you know, ships, there are viruses and there are invasive, you know, seaweeds that are on the bottom of cargo ships that do come mm -hmm. along with these, you know, get um, excreted into harbors with wastewater and then take over ecosystems. And we have this very problematically narrow idea of what a climactic ecosystem is where, you know, invasives are not allowed in, but when the ecosystem is shifting, it's those invasives, it's those other gods that need to arrive on the scene and open up the cracks and create new connectivity. So I've been thinking a lot about how in my home right now, all of these shallow rooted trees are falling down because the soil is no longer able to keep them upright with, mm -hmm. with um, alternating periods of extreme humidity and then aridness. And mm that these invasive mustard greens have a fungicidal um, quality where they kill off the mycorrhizal associations of these trees and bring them down. And they can mm -hmm. be seen as being terrible. But what I see them doing is they're being the midwife of this ecosystem. They're deciding mm -hmm. which trees can't be upright anymore. They're bringing them down. They're creating meadows where then suddenly there's more biodiversity. They're, they're the, you know, they're creating, midwifing new ecosystems and so i've been mm. thinking about these gods these trickster gods and these invasive species that they come on, on the underbelly of those colonizing boats those species arrive and you know the pig this is the best mm. this is i've been mm. praying to pigs so, so do you know that pigs who were brought over by <laughs> colonizers you're laughing at me because i'm getting so excited about the pigs i love pigs um they're brought over to terraform and destroy the indigenous um, land steward stewarding practices to take down the trees. But then pigs, when they get loose, they go wild and they grow, they grow tusks and mm -hmm. they become undomesticated in two weeks, sometimes less, such that they can never be redomesticated. And it's becoming a huge problem in America and Canada. And they think it's going to be one of the biggest issues in climate change are these roving crowds of pigs that have escaped um, our terrible capitalistic way of, of, of farming animals and right. have gone rogue and wild. And they came with the colonizers and now they're suddenly like 
you know, mm. fighting mm. back. And they go, and they, I, I love the idea that they go wild so quickly again, that their whole morphology this, changes. This is the part of your book. This is rewilding. This is the, um, there is a, there is a, um, I think about the troubles of our time and I think about these, this gravitational pull um, from rectilinearity to the diagonal, right? There, there is a sense in which we're called to worship. And I love that the fugitive position, which is a, an epistemology of hiding, right? The fugitive does not want to be seen or recognized. The fugitive does not want to stand up and to speak truth to power. <laughs> the fugitive has to run. The fugitive is the glitch of the plantation, Right. And so he, the fugitive has to bend, has to be in, di- in some kind of diagonal, erotic conversation with, with locality, with the ground, with pigs, with viruses to see things anew. Right. And, and, and this, 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 maybe thinking about mispronunciation and embarkation. By the way, I feel that in, uh, since patterns often repeat themselves, there are new ships that are coming to the shores of modern civilization. And I think we all are being invited, those of us gestating in cities are being invited to come into this diagonal worship. Again, we're being called to go and exile. Um, we're being called to embark, right? And this is, the, this is how to cultivate new gods. It's cracks have emerged, right? And it's, it's convening, a crack is a convening of a new form. Like it's a resubjectivization of the body, like a creation event. And we are in creation destruction events at this point in time. And this is the place where we prostrate or like Yoruba people would say, we dobale, we fall to the earth. We press our bodies to the ground, right? And so embarkation is exile. It needs exile. For us to try to drag the gods, Sophie, I want to say this: that that you know, when we speak about gods, we often think that these are beings in other places, right? Uh, you, you know, in the supernatural, which is probably the most unfortunate word ever invented. The supernatural, as if the natural were just a province of reality, right? Um, but um, I I think of, I think they're everywhere around us the divine, the sacred. Um, and they often hide in glitches, right? They, they hide in the places, they hide in shadows, they hide in table corners, they hide in the places we don't usually linger, go to, right? Or linger in. The effort of a politics that is responsive to these times and to the gods that are sprouting through the cracks of these times is a politics that knows how to dance and move and cultivate new postures to hold these gods and their archetypes. You know, the Candomblé um, religion, um, part, of, part of the work is possession, right? Um, a god possesses you, right? And a priest who is super, you know, you know, um, uh, you know, just curating that ritual would notice that this is issue or this is Ogun. Oh, what species of issue has entered this person today? All right, these are the dance moves you need to do to host this God well, 
And I think in modernity, we don't know how to host gods, right? Because our postures are carceral, are stuck on this front-facing positionality. So we don't know how to move, right? Our practices are not that animated for us to move from side to side. And this is why the playful epistemologies of cracks invite us to move. We need to know how to cultivate these new archetypes that are showing up or else they show up as all the things that we're witnessing today. This division of politics, this tribalized politics where we can no longer have a conversation is an effect, a symptom of a morality that doesn't know how to do anything anymore. So we need transmoral transgressions, a playfulness that allows us to cultivate these divine um, infiltrations, if you will, possession. I love that. I also love thinking about, is it, it's called the DSM, which is all of those, those different diagnoses as being uh-huh. like a, a playbook for all of the positions you yeah, can yeah. take when you <laughs> are possessed. You're like leafing through, you're like, which one should I perform? Which one is the correct mm. one? Um, mm. I, I really love thinking about Joan of Arc was someone I was fascinated with when I was growing up and then studied in college. We should, we should do a thing on that. Like, <laughs> there's a lot there. I've been thinking of her as she's a great moment of like the psychosis of the pantheistic mind that's only been given a monotheistic mm-hmm. box. Mm-hmm. I love reading her trial where she's talking about all of these different beings. And I sometimes think that what the issue she's experiencing is that she's getting a lot of different directions and she's trying to create one homogenized view of what they're mm-hmm. telling her but there are a lot of different beings who disagree with each other talking to her right, <laughs> and, right. and she needs to, she doesn't have the tools to be able to host a more interesting conversation because she's only given this monotheistic idea she, and that she's, she's constantly saying like voices, but actually voice, who is it really? And I've been thinking about the, we need to learn how to have pantheistic, like pantheistic minds again to, to uh-huh. let those voices in that might have more interesting advice on, on what positions to hold, um, mm-hmm. how to dance inappropriately. Um, something that was interesting for me was I very severely injured my knee two years ago. I ripped off my kneecap and like, I was like basically walking on flat ground and just like, it really did feel like something came and just went like this and it ripped my kneecap off, but it grounded me. And I couldn't move in the ways that I thought I could. And I ended up just sitting on the ground, moving like a sea anemone, just kind of like, Mm. just trying to move from like my root, which was on the ground. It was like a totally inappropriate way to move. But it was only Mm. as I began to move inappropriately because I was kind of grounded that I started Mm. to have more interesting ideas. Like I I could say that all of the ideas that I've had were accessed by holding positions that were uncomfortable, that I would have never ordered off the menu. So how do we how do we help each other hold positions that are are uncomfortable? That is a, that is that is a vital centralizing grounding question. How do we support each other in these times to take those candoblistic shapes, right? To dance, to have carnivalesque arrangements where we move our bodies. And I'm not just talking about dancing in public, which is a beautiful thing to do. Um, twerking in public. <laughs> we do that more often. My family keeps on, not just my family here, but my family around the world 
keeps on inviting me to twerk in public. I'm yet to summon the courage to do that. But um, by dancing, I mean something that is deeply political, something that is more than just the politics that is premised on critiquing um, oppressive systems, which we need, right? But something that is supplementary, if you will, an underground politics, a transnational politics that knows how to sniff out what the gods, the more than human, the unspeakable, the unthinkable, that which is not available for analysis is doing, right? Um, I, I, what comes to mind now is, uh, you know, that rabbinical story of um, Moses. It's this is not. This is apocryphal, I think. It's in the it's it's stories oh. that were told. <laughs> That's another conversation. But um, um, Moses as a child is as a beautiful boy is seated on the laps of the Pharaoh, right? The, the king, and and he's in court when Moses grabs the crown of the king. And the king is livid, right? And the priests are livid. They're saying, this is a sign that this boy will take your place. So kill him now. Just let's end him. Um, but some party, uh, the other, some other priests say, well, let's do a test then. We will put um, your crown in front of him and we will put some, you know, coal, hot burning coal in front of him. And if he goes for, which is brighter than a crown and more attractive, I think, if he goes for your crown in that instance, then we should kill him. But if he goes for the coal, then we should spare him, right? So it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And Moses, being true to his nature, <laughs> I guess, goes for the crown. But it is said in that moment that an angel intercepts and draws his hands to the coal. And so Moses takes the hot burning coal and puts it on his mouth. And this long story is, is a way for those rabbis to say something that it's in the glitching out, it's in the disability, it's in the dyschronic, it's in the place where we lose our eloquence that God comes in. So he was granted the gift of a lisp in order to be eloquently available for the emancipatory project of freeing the Jews, right? So it, it, I refer to that story because of, I feel we're at a place where we need to attempt different things now. But the clues are all around us. You said DSM, that's a beautiful reframing of the DSM, right? It's these, that's a map, that's a cartography of failure, but that's, that's where we want to dance to, right? Um, Fernand Delini, have you heard about him? No. Inspired Deleuze and Gattari, these are French philosophers and psychotherapists and psychiatrists. Fernand Delini um, gathered a community of autistic nonverbal children and refused to correct them, right? Saw them as wild gods, right? That refused the thesis, the Lacanian psychoanalytic thesis that we are at root verbal creatures. Language is what gives us selfhood. He rejected it. And he started this beautiful project of mapping lines and mapping lines of flight, right? Mapping the dancing, the wandering lines of the children and thought that these lines, these maps were co-creating together. 
is a map of emancipation. If we have a politics that is devoted not to curing, you know, autistic children or giving them language or imposing on some rectilinearity, but seeing them as altars, which is what my wife often calls my son, an altar, a wild place, right? The object is not to cure him or drag him into sanity, you know, gentrified sanity. The object is to worship, to stay in the trouble of his yelps and his screaming, right? If we can do that, if we can convene community around that bonfire, then we might have created a politics of surprise together, which will not guarantee us salvation, but it will shift us closer to those cracks, those unbecoming flashes of possibility. Oh, I love that. I love the idea of, of, of beings as, as wild altars. I mean, I, I'm always struck by our earliest graves of human beings are usually disabled people. And the people who were given the most extraordinary burials were often people who were not normatively shaped or, or were, were with the glitches. And so right. we can see in this, in our history of, of burials, of, of ceremonial burials, of creating these altars in the earth, we can see that the glitches were what we did honor. They were, were where we put our prayers, where they were the seeds we put in the ground. Um, yeah. I also, it's interesting to think about nonverbal. My, my friend actually composes music for, for, from nonverbal children. She says she collaborates with them and then she creates music from them. And I was thinking about how it's a great way of thinking about how we all need each other to create certain kind of communication, that we're all yeah. a prosthesis for someone else. And that if you can do it all on your own, suddenly there's no relationality. There's no world building. It's, you know, my disability is an invitation to become part of a larger body. And the invitation, mm. disability in an, it, it is an invitation to relationship. That, you know, mm. the, the things that I can't do for myself are ways in which I build community. Um, mm. Because suddenly the people who do those things for me are part of my extended body. It's like the mm. ghost pipe with the Russula um, fungi under the ground. Like the ghost pipe can't photosynthesize. So it has to create this relationship with the fungi. And it's that opening that creates the whole ecosystem. It creates, mm. you know, if, we're, if we can do everything on our own, if we can speak it all, if we're utterly pronounced correctly, then we, mm. we've become that atomized self. We've, we've become isolated. But to be yes. correct is to be isolated. To be correct is to be isolated. I'm not going to add anything to that, sister. I'm just going to. I'm just going to stay with that. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. And it sort of abruptly ends there because it goes right into the Q&A session, which, as I said earlier, you can download the full version of that over at our website. This has been an episode of The Sounds of Sand presented by Science and Non-Duality. And we invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAN content, available exclusively for SAN members. And you can get in touch with us by emailing us at podcast at scienceandnonduality.com. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Google and Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, and to share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.